You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Translations don't differ much on that, and what follows comes across well in most translations as well. Jesus enjoins those hearing the Sermon on the Mount to love enemies and pray for persecutors. Those unsettling commandments never stop scandalizing those who spend time meditating on them. And those who contemplate the New Testament and pray the Old Testament run into another problem. Certain of the Psalms pray regarding enemies, to be sure, but few readers would mistake them for loving intercessions. How can a follower of the one who forgave his enemies from the cross pray to the same God that God break those enemies' teeth? That question has always been before us, whether we know it or not. And Dr. Trevor Lawrence's book, Cursing with God, takes it as seriously as Holy Scriptures demand, articulating a theology of Scripture, of forgiveness, and of the role of the faithful along the way. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Lawrence to the show. Thank you for coming on board, Trevor. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, uh, you know, since we are uh, recording here in the Southeast, I'll go ahead and note that I'm talking with the shorter-haired Trevor Lawrence this morning, uh, but who, without doubt, wrote the better book on the Psalms. That's good to hear. <laughs> At least I've got a one-up on him in, in one area. There you go. There you go. He, he does have longer hair, though. I have to, I have to concede that. And a fuller bank account, yeah, well, undoubtedly. As it turns out. For the listeners who aren't familiar with the complexities of evangelical theology, this book is going to be an education in several ways, and I want to start with the convictions and commitments that are going to structure our reading in this book. What is a redemptive historical ethos, and to what would such an ethos commit a reader when we take on the Psalms that curse our enemies? Yeah, that's a great opening question. I I describe the book overall as an exercise in redemptive historical ethics. And what I mean by that uh, is, is first of all, there's an undergirding conviction about what Scripture is. Uh, Scripture is not a, a disjointed collection of ancient writings. Rather, it is the very Word of God that speaks faithfully and truly and with his full divine authority. But even beyond that, the redemptive historical part uh, means that I view the Bible as a unified narrative that relates God's authoritative telling of his story of history. That it's a, it's a coherent tapestry that from beginning to end is giving God's rendition of his own works to redeem a fallen world. That's why it's redemptive history. What that means for the Psalms is that from the beginning, I'm sort of bound to certain commitments about how I'm going to read them. If the Bible commends certain Psalms for the lips of God's people, then I'm going to take that commendation uh, very seriously in my own ethical evaluations. And that may mean second-guessing my own ethical intuitions about them. Uh, but beyond that, uh, viewing Scripture as a redemptive historical narrative means that when I try to ethically evaluate what the psalmists are doing, my first step is to ask, how do they see themselves as characters within God's story of the world? It's by now a truism 
to say that a story determines ethics. In other words, how you think you ought to live is going to be governed either explicitly or implicitly by what what story you think you're a character in. And so I want to ask, how do the psalmist, how does Israel, how does the Davidic king fit into the story of what God is doing in a way that makes it self-evident that they can pray this way without blinking? That's one of the arresting parts of the imprecatory psalms is that they don't flinch. There's no hint that what they're doing is pressing towards unfaithfulness or impiety. They assume the rightness of this mode of prayer. I want to understand the story that they are living in that results in that ethical justification. And beyond that, I want to understand how that story extends to encompass the church, the Christian, myself, so that I can then have a narrative for understanding God's reality that will clue me in on how I can begin relating to this type of prayer as well. Very good. And listeners, I mean, hopefully you were listening carefully there because we have a fair number of biblical scholars on this show and a number of them uh, Dr. Lawrence engages in the course of this book. And his approach, I mean, is interesting precisely because it runs counter to a lot of the impulses of my own Bible reading, to be sure, but also a lot of the impulses of a lot of academic biblical interpreters. Uh, so, you know, these things will unfold as we go along, but I want to get on to some of your conversation partners in the book. Your first chapter after the introduction begins with C.S. Lewis's well-known objections to the imprecatory psalms. And listeners, I didn't say this earlier, but when we say imprecatory psalms, that is a fancy Latinate phrase for psalms that speak against enemies, broadly speaking. So I'd like to give you, I'd, I'd like for you, pardon me, to give our listeners a sense of Lewis's response. Does Lewis make a theological argument about these psalms? Does he merely repo- report his own emotional aversion? Is something else going on when C.S. Lewis reads these, well, these psalms? You tell us what kinds of psalms they are. Right. Uh, that's that's a helpful definition, uh, that the imprecatory psalms speak against enemies. We could get just a tad bit more precise and say that they they re- make requests against enemies. They petition for divine justice and judgment against enemies. And of course, right. that and raises... I'm trying to be very careful not to say they curse enemies because you make an argument against that in your book. That's right. Yeah, I use the phrase cursing in a very particular way um, and try to define my terms very carefully to avoid misunderstanding. But uh, yeah, that type of prayer raises modern hackles and it raised Lewis's as well. He says, that, you know, these psalms hit us like the heat from a furnace mouth. They're barbaric, uh, even contemptible modes of prayer. So he sees these as um, non-ideal, to say the least. These are unethical forms of prayer. They, the, they reflect the worst of the human heart. Um, and there's, there is a lot going on. Uh, he does make a theological argument. It's interesting. He says that these Psalms defy the ethics of not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Lewis notes that the Old Testament, like the New Testament, enjoins love, even of those who oppose us. But he, he sees these as running counter to both Old Testament ethical prescriptions and Jesus's own ethical commands that you laid out in the introduction. 
what allows him to do that, though, is a particular notion of what Scripture is. He says, all Scripture is the Word of God, but all Scripture doesn't speak as the Word of God in the same way. And so he'll say that in the imprecatory Psalms, we have to strain to hear the voice of God coming through human barbarism and violence. And so Lewis, seeing a, an ethical uh, dilemma here, um, has a view of what the Bible is and how it speaks to us that legitimates his ethical evaluation of the Psalms as unfaithful and barbaric. The question is, is that actually the way that Scripture speaks to us? And as I try to point out in that section, if we go down that route, what are the guardrails that keep us from saying that we have to strain to hear the voice of God any time a text runs counter to our own cultural and ethical assumptions? And honestly, that's why I wanted to talk about C.S. Lewis first, because there are, broadly speaking, progressive biblical scholars uh, who do precisely that. They say that, you know, there are some parts of scripture, you know, because um, of, you know, certain ethical criteria. And, you know, as someone who's not, you know, inside of the progressive biblical scholarship world, I can say, wow, they they seem to confirm what you came in wanting to hear them say. Uh, but w whatever the reasons are, uh, you know, they'll say that some parts of scripture speak for God, whereas others, you know, are there for us to speak against, uh, perhaps in the name of God, perhaps in the name of our humanity, something else. Once again, I mean, what makes your book interesting and what made the book uh, compelling as an argument uh, is that you do have this, you know, very particular evangelical uh, theology of Scripture. So, you know, I'd, I want to commend that, but I also want to keep drawing our listeners' attention to it because this is not by any means, uh, you know, a common approach to the text in biblical scholarly circles. Or even within evangelical circles. I mean, as, as I try to... As I try to lay out, there's all kinds of evangelical approaches that will continue to create distance between uh, the Christian church, uh, the ethics of Jesus, and the imprecatory Psalms. But to your point, I think it's it's really important for us to consider, do I have a way of approaching the scripture that ever allows God to contradict what I already believe? Right, right. Or do I have a built-in escape hatch for every time I get squirmy that I can explain away why the text doesn't mean what it seems to mean or doesn't address me with the authority that all the other parts that confirm my priors do? Well, another of your, your conversation partners is Walter Brueggemann, uh, who has been on this podcast before. And Brueggemann's uh, take on these imprecatory psalms is that they are fundamentally therapeutic. Uh, they are liturgical actions of yielding one's desires for vengeance to God so that God can handle those emotions that we are incapable of handling. So they become fundamentally not our problem anymore because God has taken them from us. Now, once again, you articulate your own commitments that keep you from reading, you know, um, well, I mean, you know, you articulate it, frankly, so clearly that our readers need a taste of it, even before they go out and get your book, what they're, which they're going to do. Uh, but what keeps you from joining the Brugamaniacs in that therapeutic camp? Well, I'll 
open by saying that I really appreciate part of what Brueggemann and others like Eric Zenger and uh, Patrick Miller are doing with this sort of perspective. I think there is a kind of powerful dynamic relinquishing, a handing over of justice and judgment to God that happens when we pray uh, in this way, in communion with God. My problem comes with the ethical evaluation that's underneath the therapeutic evaluation. So the argument isn't just that these are therapeutically beneficial, it's that they are ethically unfaithful, but therapeutically beneficial. In other words, we should not pray this way, but in order to heal, we need to. Or, or to even simplify, we shouldn't pray this way ethically, but we should therapeutically. And so the uh, the endorsement of imprecatory prayer comes completely at, as a result of what these can do within us in order to bring us out of our darkness and our violence and into a, a place of healing and wholeness. I have a number, as you know, of questions about that approach. Uh, first regards the ethical evaluation, and this goes beyond what I call the relinquishment readings to any that would sort of denigrate the ethics of the imprecatory psalms, and that is simply that the New Testament has imprecatory prayers in its own right. And Jesus in Luke 18 endorses prayers for justice when he tells the parable of the persistent widow. We've got uh, a, a behind-the-curtain view of the prayers of martyred saints in Revelation 6, saying, How long, O Lord, until you avenge the blood of your servants upon those who dwell upon the earth? They're quoting an imprecatory psalm. They're riffing on the psalms in heavenly prayer. So that judgment, that ethical judgment, that the New Testament runs counter to imprecatory petition, I think, doesn't take account for the full scope of biblical data. The, the other question I have is sort of ethical and liturgical. Is it satisfactory to say that we should pray in ways that God does not desire? We should pray in ways that we shouldn't. When I want to get cheeky, I, I will ask others that maybe, maybe we should consult Nadab and Abihu about what happens when we bring something unfit for the presence of God into the presence of God. And I'm, I'm just not sure that the ethical justification uh, that's offered by that reading is, is good enough, frankly. But liturgically, I think there's, there's a sort of liturgical mixed messaging going on. When we consider what liturgy does in the life of the church, communal practice exercises a norming influence. In other words, when we come together for corporate worship, we are practicing for life in the world. We're practicing the life of faith. And so if we engage in imprecatory song or prayer in in the liturgical life of the church, we're telling people, pray then this way, while at the same time saying, but your heart shouldn't really ever feel this way. 
And I think that, that that will end up creating all sorts of divisions and disjunctions, even at an existential level, as one tries to offer God prayers that in the back of one's mind, you know that he doesn't really desire to hear from you. Um, I, I, yeah. I think that there are conflicts internal to this perspective, uh, and I haven't seen anything that really irons those out. Right. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me just now as you're narrating it that didn't occur to me when I was reading is that, I mean, there is at least some secondhand influence of, of Freudian psychoanalysis going on here that, you know, the uh, this kind of reading that you're narrating, you know, uh, serves as a kind of release of a theological id, if you will, uh, that, you know, in order to stay in balance or to stay well adjusted, uh, one has to release. But you're right that, I mean, you know, the the traditional ways of understanding liturgy, uh, generally speaking, don't have an id release segment. Right. We we don't go in saying we ought to practice something that God doesn't desire from his people. Uh, worship is, is where we go to give God the glory due his name. And so any practice, even if only implicitly, receives a sort of ethical commendation by its sheer presence in that participatory worship of the church. I'll also say that at a sort of meta-ethical level, there are questions, uh, namely, is there conflict in God's reality between what is right for us and what is good for us? And it seems to me that if the maker of heaven and earth and of the human body, mind, and heart is also the one who establishes laws and commands about what is permissible in his world, uh, there are deep theological reasons for suspecting that there is a coherence that when we live according to the creator's will and desire ethically, we will in fact be living in the most fruitful, flourishing-inducing form of life. This is, this is sort of typical of reformed conceptions of the law, that there is a coherence between what is good and what is good for me, that God's ethical path laid out in his word is in fact the way that his world and his people work best. Well, in the last pages of chapter one, and specifically I've got pages 92 and 93 in mind if you need to review, although I don't know if you need to review or not, uh, you enumerate the criteria that are going to shape and limit the readings that, that unfold in chapters to come. So before we dive into the text of the Psalms, uh, I want to hear those criteria enumerated for our listeners quickly. Uh, what must an evangelical theology of imprecatory Psalms do in order to proceed faithfully? Yeah, this is at the tail end of that survey of, of all of those different readings. And what I've basically done there is I've collated all of the questions that other readings have not answered satisfactorily. And I've, I've tried to say, well, what I want to do with this positive project is provide better answers than the ones I have surveyed already. So there are, there are several, um, but... Among them, I want to read the imprecatory psalms in their redemptive historical context. So I want to understand how they flow coherently out of the story that the Old Testament is telling and what the psalmist, how the psalmist envision their own place in the world. 
And I want to consider the church's redemptive historical location as well, uh, as I'm asking the ethical question about Christian performance. I want I want to account for the fact that in the Psalms, there is an assumption that there are ethically appropriate forms of human agency in God's exercise of vengeance. I want to take that troubling detail seriously. I, I want to honor the pedagogical function of the Psalms in Israel and in the church. So in other words, if the Psalms are the worship book of Israel and they commend a form of communion with God in the practice of God's covenant people, then I want to be very slow about saying, well, clearly the Psalms are unethical in their prayer. I don't think that that does justice to the pedagogical function of the edited Psalter in the life of Israel or the church. Uh, perhaps the, the biggest thing I want to do that I feel like others haven't done well is create, have a vision for why the New Testament prays this way as well. Um, one of the recurring objections that I have is, okay, perhaps a reading internally, it it's all well and good. It sort of holds together consistently, but can it account for all of the biblical data, including the fact that the New Testament seems in multiple places to condemn a form of imprecatory prayer for the people of God as well? There are all sorts of other uh tiny technical details that I lay out that I want I want to address, but those are probably the biggest. All right, very good. So let's get on into the Psalms. First question, I mean, for these Psalms that pray against enemies, who are the enemies? Um, how much should readers pay attention to the variety and the range of those enemies? And how much should readers pay attention to what unifies those enemies, theologically or otherwise? Yeah, there are a variety of enemies in the Psalms. This is not a monolithic group. So some Psalms will address personal enemies. So the, the psalmist is pursued, his life is in danger because uh, of individuals or groups that are attacking him as a person. Some psalms will address societal enemies. So that is people who hold political or judicial power and their wickedness isn't aimed at a particular individual, but it's actually a more systemic form of corruption, where they're able to wield the power that they hold within the social structure of Israel in ways that militate against the, the peace, the flourishing, the joy and justice of God's people as a whole. Then we've got national enemies. So looking outside the borders of Israel at marching militaries and armed soldiers. And so the imprecatory Psalms will look beyond the borders as well to the dangers of invading armies and ask God to address those as well. I personally think it's really interesting to note that those external enemies are not the norm in the imprecatory Psalms. If you if you read through the Psalter, the majority of imprecatory prayers have have their eyes inside the covenant community. I think it's very easy for us to, to assume that the imprecatory psalms are Israelite ways of othering enemies or looking at non-Israelite 
uh, opposition and addressing their prayers against them. But the enemies can arise from without or from within. And more often, it's the corruption and the injustice and the predation within the covenant people themselves that the psalmists are concerned with. What that's unifies? One of the chief, uh, that's one of the chief insights of Dante is that the uh, the enemies within are ultimately much colder than those en- enemies outside. Well, and we see that in the New Testament as well. You know this this notion that take stock of yourself. Judgment begins within the house of the Lord. There's there is a um, a sort of posture that I think all of the scriptures commend to us. That is to to take note of what needs to be rectified within one's own camp before concerning oneself with whatever dangers and opposition may lie on the outside. What unifies the enemies, though, is that they are dangers, they are threats to the flourishing and the existence of God's temple kingdom. It's been noted that I use a lot of hyphens but I think that's that's because I want to more precisely sort of address misunderstandings. If I were to talk merely about the kingdom of God, modern Western readers often have very abstract notions of what that means, that the kingdom of God is this sort of place where God is honored as king, where his authority sort of uh, holds sway over us. When I talk about the temple kingdom, though, what I want to emphasize is that God's presence is actually among his people, that when he rules in royal authority, he does so from his throne in the temple where his glory presence dwells in holiness. And what does that do? It means that his temple kingdom people, the community with whom he dwells, must also be a people of holiness. And so, It's not just when invading armies are threatening to tear down the temple that the temple kingdom is threatened. It's also when unholiness and innocent bloodshed multiplies in the land of the divine dwelling that the temple kingdom has a question mark cast over it. I mean, when why is evil within Israel a threat to the temple kingdom? It's not merely because the peace and joy of life in God's presence are fractured. It's also because God says, if unrepentant idolatry and wickedness multiplies in my land, I'm going to cast you out from my presence just like I did Adam and Eve. So the imprecatory Psalms take very seriously that exile and judgment will come for a covenant people if the soil is stained with the blood of the innocent. If idolatry and injustice are permitted to multiply and continue to prey upon the people that God cares for. Uh, So the enemies, no matter where they come from, no matter where they arise, are a threat to the existence, the prosperity, the joy, the preservation of the temple kingdom of God, the community and the place where God makes his holiness to dwell very good very good yeah so first of all i mean you know don't worry about hyphenated phrases uh biblical scholars love hyphens and slashes and all kinds of punctuation and for good reason i mean you know uh whenever we use the english language to talk about the bible we are 
every time bumping up against what somebody has heard in church. So that's right. Uh, what we do is uh, we coin hyphenated and slash neologisms that we can, you know, be fairly confident no one's ever heard in church before. And you've done so, sir. But one of the key texts, um, I mean, when you talk about this, this temple kingdom is Genesis 3. Uh, this is a text that recurs throughout this book. Uh, and the serpent there in Genesis 3 becomes a paradigm, if I'm reading it right, for all sorts of enemies that show up in the Psalms. So who is that serpent? Uh, and whose readings of Genesis 3 are closer to yours? And whose readings do you stay away from as you do this theology of Scripture? Yeah, let me assure you, you are reading me correctly. Uh, I've already said that I see the Bible as a coherent and unified narrative of what God is doing in the world. And I I think the imprecatory psalms themselves refer so abundantly to prior episodes of redemptive history that they bear witness to this coherent vision of the storied reality that the psalmists are indwelling. My reading of Genesis 1 through 3 is foundational to what I'm doing in the book and how I think really the entire Bible plays out. God made the cosmos to be the temple of his glory, and Eden is his first mountaintop sanctuary dwelling on the soil of the earth. Adam is created to be a royal priest and to extend the bounds of the garden by subduing the earth and making all of creation fit to be the, the dwelling of the Lord of holiness and glory. But he's also commissioned to serve and guard the garden. That means to protect the sanctity of God's sanctuary with the exact language that's applied to priests and Levites with the tabernacle and temple. He is a royal priest. And when Genesis 3 begins and corruption slithers into the sanctuary garden, a true priest king would have driven out the serpent, would have exercised judgment against the serpent, would have protected the place of God's presence like a true priestly guardian. And I think the rest of uh, the, the story of Israel sort of plays with these notions. It develops these notions. Israel is an Adamic people, a royal priesthood, a son of God, like Adam. And they are called all throughout their life uh, to both subdue the land where God will dwell, Canaan is a new Eden, but also to protect the sanctity of the community and the space where his glory already resides. That means guarding the words of the covenant in holiness. It means at purging the evil from their midst. And in the imprecatory Psalms, it means praying as a priestly guardian as well. The enemies throughout the Psalms are described in remarkably serpentine terms. They are snakes, venomous asps. The, the poison of serpents is under their tongues and in their lips. They deceive with craftiness. And the psalmists ask God to drive them away, to expel them from his presence, to render head-crushing judgment, oftentimes beneath the feet of his people. What is this? Th these are 
images and themes drawn from Genesis 2 and particularly from Genesis 3.15, where God promises that an Adamic son will live as a true priest king and crush the head of the serpent and his seed uh, beneath his feet. The Psalms pray within that narrative. I, I try to clarify, they don't just take that promise and turn the promise into a prayer. The psalmists envision themselves as participants in the promise. That is, as a royal priesthood, as an Adamic people, they play their part by praying against serpents and protecting the place where God's presence dwells. Uh, and in so doing, they faithfully enact the role of a royal priestly son of God within God's narrative of the world. Very good. Listeners, I want to note here that this is an undeniably rich book. Uh, so I, I want to make a note again, as I did earlier, that you're going to find all kinds of material in here uh, that we're not going to have time to talk about in this interview. Um, but Trevor, I do want to zoom in on one line of inquiry that I found especially fascinating in chapter two, namely the relationships between Abraham's call to be a blessing to the nations and these imprecatory Psalms. How do the nations stand in God's future, and and what does it mean to pray these psalms in relationship with those nations? Yeah, it's interesting. The the initial Abrahamic promise has God announcing, I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you, and your family shall be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And in the imprecatory psalms, we see those realities playing out as well. It's important here to note that the Psalms are not just petitions. They are also hope-filled declarations of what will certainly come to pass. So they're not just asking, God, please do this. Oftentimes they will punctuate the prayer for God to act in a certain way by stating positively, and you will. In line with the contours of the Abrahamic covenant, the imprecatory Psalms bear witness that the nations that oppose the people of God will receive his judgment. Those who curse his temple kingdom will be cursed. Those who bless the temple kingdom will be blessed. And so there is uh, an absolutely certain confidence that all the enemies of God's purposes and people in the world will one day be judged with perfect justice. And yet at the same time, the Psalms in multiple places hold out hope that when God exercises his judgment, the nations will see that the Lord alone is God. They will come bearing gifts, bearing tribute to his mountain, to his house, and they will join the psalmists themselves in worship of the Lord of glory. There are two ways that God is magnified, ultimately in the Psalms, uh, much the same way that he is magnified with the exodus from Egypt, for example. He will get glory over the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh. Pharaoh will ultimately know that the Lord alone is God. And at the same time, those who witness God's justice and come to him bearing gifts will know that the Lord is God in a different way, in a way not merely of forced submission, but of worshipful acquiescence. And so the Psalms hold out hope 
that the nations will come to the Lord. The nations will unite themselves under the covenant with his people and be wrapped up in all of the blessings that God promises to pour out upon his creation. How that reality works out is sort of an open question. And yet, as we move towards the New Testament, we begin to see the way that God can judge his enemies and at the same time exercise an open-handed invitation to all the nations of the world to come and unite themselves to Jesus. Very good. Those that bless you, God will bless. Those that curse you, God will curse. Uh, This is as good a time as any. You know, when a uh, translator of the Bible translates some word into the English word curse, um, what does that have in common with what these with, with what these psalms are doing? And what are the strong differences between a curse and one of these psalms? Yeah, this is an important distinction that I, I try to make in several places within the book, because it's easy for us to slip into Uh, a characteristic way of understanding these psalms, which is as cursing psalms, that they are psalms that curse the enemies, which of course raises So so did your publisher give this book its title or uh, were you being ironic? Oh, you're being ironic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so a curse in the ancient world is an effective speech act that accomplishes or seeks to accomplish what it declares. So when one curses an enemy, One is taking aim at that person and trying to, in a sense, unleash and direct supernatural power for the harm of that individual. That's not what the imprecatory psalms are doing. They are not um, understood to be implicitly and inherently effective speech acts directed against the enemy that unleash spiritual power. What are they? They're prayers. They're directed not directly at the enemy, but at God himself, asking God, petitioning God, requesting God to work according to his promises. And that's where I I sort of, in a tongue-in-cheek way, talk about cursing with God. Because God has already declared his covenant curse over his enemies. And all throughout the Psalms, uh, the psalmists will use particular phrasing that link what their enemies are doing to curses that God has already declared against covenant breakers and the unjust wicked. And so they're, in a sense, in a a sort of ancient form of allusion and echo, they're footnoting their prayers, uh, almost with cross-reference citations to what God has already said. God has declared his curse. And the psalmists are asking God to make good on his promises to judge. So when I talk about cursing with God, I mean praying God's curses back to him and asking him to take care of the justice he has promised to effect in the world. I'm not saying that we sort of try to effectively punish our enemies by saying the right words, and unleashing power for their harm. That's a good distinction. That's a good distinction. One of my favorite things about this book, and I really like this book, is that it is simultaneously consistent theologically and supremely flexible literarily. Uh, So I want our listeners to hear a little bit. Uh, You're not going to be able to go through the whole catalog, I hope, 
but I mean, what are some of the more striking, some of the more surprising, uh, some of the more variable symbols and images that the imprecatory psalms use for the enemy? You're right. I I do sort of uh, I problematize simplistic and reductive readings by noting the flexibility of some of these categories. I I talk about the Psalms as having three actors, the enemy, the imprecator, and the divine judge. And all of those categories end up being quite flexible, not because I'm trying to be creative or original, but I'm trying to take my cues from the New Testament itself. That, I think, is one of the helpful contributions of the project, is my, my first question is how does the New Testament employ these categories as it tells the story of Jesus and his church? How we see that flexibility playing out with the enemy in particular is the the Psalms are referred to and echoed to frame all sorts of different actors. So, Enemy language from the imprecatory psalms describes the religious leaders of Israel who opposed Jesus. Uh, it's used to depict Judas in particular. The fate of enemies um, in the psalms is applied to spiritual powers, Satan and the kingdom of darkness. The fate of the enemy in the Psalms is the fate that Satan and his demonic kingdom are going to receive as well. And then enemy language even gets applied to Jesus, who bears the covenant curse in the place of the enemies of God, and even to Christians themselves, former enemies who have now been made joyful sons and daughters in the king's temple kingdom. And so what I've tried to do is take my cues from the flexibility of the way the New Testament uses those categories within the Psalms and say there is a sort of narrative-shaped reason why this category gets applied so flexibly. And that's because the category of the enemy is ultimately about driving away threats to the holiness and flourishing of God's temple kingdom. And in the New Testament, any threat to that temple kingdom can is, is sort of fair game for the New Testament writers to apply psalmic enemy language to that actor. And what I ultimately try to do is say it's also fair game for our own imprecatory prayers, whether it's the sin that dwells within me, the temple of God, or the community who is the ecclesial temple of God, or whether it's a human, systemic, or spiritual power that corrupts uh, the, the people in place of God's presence. All of those are enemy threats that need to be driven away in prayer for divine justice. And and this brings me to a question that that occurred to me several times in the book. I mean, as you note, you know, these enemies uh, can include human beings and they can include even the self and they can include, you know, um, spiritual thrones and principalities. And the ultimate vision here uh, is God's temple kingdom in its fullness. But uh, what strikes me is that your theological reading of it seems to swerve 
every time it seems to be heading in, you know, what I'd call a universalist direction, something that uh, David Bentley Hart or Gregory of Nyssa might approve of. Uh, do I err in detecting something like limited atonement in your theology? Well, remember, I am very forthcoming about my own theological positions in the introduction. And I sort of named that I'm a I'm an elder in the Presbyterian Church. I subscribe to the Westminster standards. And so, yes, in my own theology and my reading of the Bible, I would hold to a limited atonement. I think more generally, though, I don't I try to avoid going in any sort of universalist direction because I see the scriptures uh, plainly stating that divine justice will be affected against the enemies of God. That's not just an Old Testament reality, but it's on the lips of Jesus, and it's all throughout the New Testament witness as well, that the invitation to repentance for enemies to become sons is always open. And in and that has to condition the way that we pray the imprecatory psalms as well. I note how prayers for repentance and conversion satisfy all of the conditions of the imprecatory psalms, so to speak. And yet there's there is nevertheless the witness of the text that judgment will be exercised against those who continue to rebel against and oppose the king. That serpents and their offspring will be expelled when the new creation is consummated as the temple of the glory of the Lord. And so, I again, one of my critiques of other readings was that they didn't take seriously, in my estimation, the range of biblical data. And so I want to make sure that the, the view that I propose in the book uh, doesn't fall into that same trap. All right. Thank you for that. And another angle I want to hear you explore a little bit more is the identification of the, not only the person who prays the imprecation, but sometimes the enemy of God uh, with the persecuted and oppressed Christ. Uh, you know, I mean, these facets of Christ's story and the forms of worship that embody them, uh, you know, they are all over this reading of the New Testament. Uh, you know, I mean, what does Christian worship gain in your view uh, when we let Christ be not only the one who issues these imprecations, but also to stand as the enemy within these imprecations? Yeah. What I have wanted to do in the book is to offer an effectively dynamic sort of existentially mobile reading of the Psalms that accounts for where we begin and where ultimately we can end. One of the big things that I try to do is note that the Psalms are bearing witness to Jesus in a variety of ways. And the story of the gospel is not just that Jesus goes through all of these things, but that those who trust him by faith, are united to him such that his story becomes my story. So if I begin to pray an imprecatory psalm, hearing Jesus as the one who embodies innocent suffering and oppression, I not only have 
a sort of example standing outside of me. But what I have is a Savior who stands in solidarity, who knows the depths of pain, of violent victimization, even, even more deeply than I myself know it, and who is able to sympathize with me and walk with me through my suffering. In some sense, I can even say that no matter how devastating my own oppression or experience of violence may become, that Jesus took violence's worst swipe against me when he went to the cross. And in that way, by letting my heart trace the contours of Jesus's story and, and know that I'm united to that story, something can begin to happen within me. My prayer of deep pain can become a profound source of hope. The same will happen if I hear Jesus as the enemy of God who bears the curse in place of enemies. I will begin to recognize that when I pray the judgments of the Psalms, I'm bearing witness to the to the judgment that Jesus took, not just for the world, but for me. What will that do? Well, it will relativize any sense of superiority or pride that I may have over those who have occupied my imagination with their violence, I'll begin to understand that I stand condemned in the tribunal of God as well. And it's only because Jesus bore the judgment due me that I can bear the name and calling of a son of God in Christ. That will interrupt any sort of vindictive purely retributive, harm-seeking mode of prayer against my enemy. And it will, it will give me a sense of solidarity with the one against whom I'm praying. It will help me see the sameness, not just the otherness, of my enemy. And by humbling me as a recipient of grace, uh, it, it will change the tone and the direction, inevitably, of, of the ways that I begin to pray. So what I'm trying to do is, is offer a dynamic vision of the way that imprecatory prayer that takes seriously how they bear witness to Jesus will envelop me, immerse me within a narrative that will, will inevitably act upon me so one of the ways that I talk about it is I'm asking not just how do we enact the Psalms, but how do the Psalms act upon us to change us in the very practice of prayer? Yeah, and, you know, some concrete questions occur to me, and, I, and you know, um, these are just now occurring to me, so I might not even formulate them well. But, you know, one of the uh, criticisms of evangelical worship uh, is that, you know, it is very, very good at, you know, praise. It is very, very good at celebration. But when it comes to lamentation and even when it comes to repentance, sometimes uh, public worship sometimes lacks those elements. Um, you know, is there a a danger on the mirror side of that uh, when we use imprecatory psalms in public worship? I mean, uh, you know, does this and, and again, I'm trying to formulate this. Do we stand in danger of reading these in unworthy manners when we use them publicly that we don't when, for instance, they, they come up in a pastoral counseling situation or private conversation or things like that? Uh, is there a particular danger in the public reading of these? Or am I just too jittery because I've been in too many evangelical worship services? Uh, 
you're not you're not too jittery. Uh, I I want to recognize that the problem goes even deeper than the imprecatory psalms. I think it's a dangerous thing to pray. It's Say a more. it's a dangerous thing to talk to God because the desperately wicked human heart is able to take any sort of prayer or declaration and twist it for idolatrous or sinful purposes. So we could be praising God all the live long day, but there is the danger that we'll do it in a way that's trying to twist his arm so that I can get the small g God that I really want from him. Uh, you could preach the ethical commands of scripture, but within the culture of any particular church, that may come across as a message that says, make sure that you win God's approval by how well you obey his voice. Talking to God and listening to God is always a dangerous endeavor because we're able, we are able to hear and say what we want to hear and say. So I would say uh, that recognizing that maybe the risks of imprecatory prayer are even more obvious and apparent to us. The way that that is framed within a community is going to be of paramount importance. Uh, in other words, we need to recognize the ways that we can sinfully abuse these psalms uh, and directly try to counter that with the way that we're shaping the community and calling the community into a mode of practice and prayerful communion um, that that instead cultivates faith, hope, and love rather than reifying our vindictiveness and vengeance. And uh, listeners, I mean, if you want a recent book that explores these sorts of things that Dr. Lawrence is talking about, I, I'm blanking on the title, but I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. But uh, Lauren Winner over at uh, Duke Divinity School recently published a book on the dangers of Christian practice, and she focuses on confession and prayer and these sorts of things. And it, it is a, a book that will give you no joy, uh, but it might haunt you in just the right ways. So... I want to commend that along with Dr. Lawrence's book, because like I said, I really enjoyed it. Now, I've got listeners, Dr. Lawrence, uh, who are either for progressive theological reasons or for Nietzschean reasons or for whatever other reasons are right now dwelling with this question. What kinds of cautions might this book take so that precisely in their most uh, well-intentioned moments, uh, you know, they lead readers to you know, take this proto-evangelium, the, the crushing of the serpent, and use it to pour gasoline on their most violent and their most vengeful and their basest urges. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, book three of, of Nietzsche's book, Genealogy of Morals, of course, you know, lays this out in, you know, a German rhetoric that, you know, sticks with you when you read it. Uh, but certainly we've all been around, you know, people who, uh, you know, here in the South would say, bless your heart. And we know exactly what bless your heart means. That's right. So uh, what kinds of cautions does this book take against bless your heart? Yeah. I think the first thing I would say is that a careful reading of the imprecatory Psalms themselves will reveal that the Psalms have their own safeguards against abuses built in, uh, which means essentially that 
if one is going to take seriously what the Psalms are actually saying, uh, you won't be able to pray them in certain malicious ways. So the, the Psalms, for example, are all the time declaring the imprecator's personal relative innocence in the matter at hand. In other words, the the psalmist hasn't thrown the first punch and then cried foul when he got punched in return. The, rather, the psalmist is declaring before God, uh, my hands are clean, my heart is pure, I have done nothing to deserve this. These people are wrongfully my foes. I haven't instigated or initiated this conflict. Rather, I'm being pursued with malice and ill intent for no discernible reason. If you can't pray that way, then you you really aren't permitted by the Psalms themselves to take them upon your own lips. At the same time, the Psalms direct themselves in a certain affective orientation as well. They're calling for God to glorify his name, to, to exalt his beauty, to manifest uh, the, the splendor of his character in the world. The psalmist says, that is my highest desire in all of this, is that your name would be glorified. If your highest desire when you take up an imprecatory psalm is to see your enemy squirm in pain, then you can't in any legitimate way rehearse the psalmist's words. So there are safeguards that if, if I begin to pray them in the wrong way, will confront me and interrupt me and redirect me, or they'll shut me down and, and make me realize that I can't continue praying this way. It's disingenuous. It's an abuse of the text itself. But in addition to that, uh, and it's related to this Christocentric reading, if we let the Psalms take us into the story of Jesus, inevitably our idols, our falsehoods, our indwelling sin is going to be confronted. The gospel of grace uh, has the power to transform the human heart. And if my rehearsal of the imprecatory psalms takes me deeper into the story of what Jesus has done for me, for his people, for the world, then my vindictiveness, my pettiness, my malice are going to, again, be confronted and interrupted. I will not be able to continue praying in the same way as I see Jesus for who he is and find myself wrapped up in his story. I, I spend a whole lot of space working out the details of how those affective dynamics and contours may work upon the human heart, even when we enter into the practice of prayer in the wrong way. Um, but those are those are a few ways that I think the Psalms when performed in the way that, that I'm advocating for, won't let us continue in a trajectory of sinful violence. Very good. Trevor, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about biblical theology and precatory psalms or whatever else as we head for the door? Uh, a few things. And I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, first of all, um, when we find ourselves with questions about the ethics of any particular part of the Bible, uh, I think it's imperative 
that we first question ourselves, not God. That doesn't mean that God can't handle our questions or that there's a, never a time for working out the ins and outs of what's going on in a particular place. But when the text is commending something that my heart can't commend, I need to take stock of my own sociocultural and ethical location and begin to tease out why is it that I can't give my amen to what the Bible is giving its amen to. I need to practice uh, the art of self-interrogation at least as vehemently as I practice interrogation of the scriptures themselves. I need to ask, what story am I assuming? What narrative am I envisioning that I'm a character in? And how is that diverging from the story that the scriptures are telling? Second, I would simply say, the Bible is more beautiful than any of us would ever expect. The story is more coherent, and the more that we press into the details, the more that we hear the ways that each progressing scene of the narrative is calling back, hearkening back to what took place before, the more we see the intertextual connections and the ways that Jesus is framed as the fulfillment of all of the promises and actions of God, will be flabbergasted. And what, what it will result in is a totalizing narrative of the world that we can participate in, that can begin to saturate our own imaginations so that all of our modern, Western, uh, individualistic sensibilities can begin to be unwound and then rewoven by the narrative of God so that we can begin living in his world as if it truly is destined to be the temple of the glory of of the Lord, as if my calling truly is to be a son of God, a priest and a king in his creation as if I truly am bound to Jesus in all of the ways that he fulfills the story of the Lord. Trevor Lawrence, thank you for joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Cursing with God from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace. Serve the Lord.